0: And they all have some kind of miracle in them. You know, a single parent ends up finding the true love of their life. Someone from a big city goes to a small town and finds out that's where they're really needed. I mean, there's some kind of wonderful reality that happens at Christmas time where we love to call attention to the miraculous. And for those of you who love shmarmy, cheesy Christmas movies, don't feel bad. I've watched them all. In fact, the other night, Christy and I were sitting on the couch watching one, and we were calling out what was going to happen well before it ever happened. But we watched the whole movie, and we loved to do it. You know, I think it started with uh, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Were were there shmarmy Christmas movies before that? Probably, I don't know, but that certainly set the standard. Um, But this time of year, we do think about the miraculous. We think about the possibilities that... Exist. And it's really true that Christmas time calls that out because the greatest miracle of all time, God becoming flesh, occurred at Christmas. The Creator becoming a part of the creation. It's miraculous. And that's why Christmas is so wonderful. And we're going to be looking at, over the next three weeks, different aspects of the miraculous nature of the incarnation that we celebrate this uh, season during the Christmas time. This morning, we're going to be looking at the God of the incarnation. What does the fact that God became flesh tell us about God? about his nature, about what he's like, and who he is. The first thing that it tells us is that he's sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, I looked up the definition of sovereign in the dictionary, and it said that being sovereign means that you possess supreme or ultimate power. And that really sort of depends on the context, doesn't it? When I was a little kid, I grew up in a small Kansas town, and we liked to go out to Denver for vacations. And when we entered into the Denver metro area, I was always amazed that my dad knew where to go. Because there were so many streets and so many people, and yet somehow we always got where we were going to go. And I was so impressed, my. By my dad's sovereignty (laughs) when it came to knowing where to go. And yet he really wasn't sovereign, was he? I mean, I was a little boy. My context for understanding his knowledge was limited. But as we grow up, there are other aspects of sovereignty that we begin to appreciate. Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson, he's the Secretary of Health and uh, uh, Housing and Urban Development, I think. Surgeon, brain surgeon, read a a story about him, and he did a surgery that separated conjoined twins who were joined at the head. Had never been done before. It was a 30-hour surgery. In that surgical room, Dr. Carson was sovereign. He directed everyone's steps. He was in control. He had the knowledge and the skills and the authority to make that happen. And it was a successful operation. But Dr. Carson's not truly sovereign either, is he? He ran for president and was unsuccessful. There is one truly sovereign being. Sovereign in the sense that he possesses political Power—that That is, he reigns over all the universe. He possesses the ability to control or to manage every aspect of that political reign. And he has the perspective with which to manage everything. That is, he has full knowledge. And that is God. He is politically, powerfully, and perspectively sovereign over all things. Now, when you think about the incarnation, stop and think about what was going on there. It says in Revelation chapter 13 that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So before the world was ever created, God knew in his mind that Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, would become flesh and would suffer, die, and rise again for our sin. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Early on in Genesis, God says that it will be the seed of the woman that crushes the serpent's head or destroys the power of sin. Now, stop and imagine over the course of the 4,000 years or so, from the creation of Adam to the uh, appearance of Jesus Christ, all of the generations that lived. We see those in the genealogies in Matthew chapter one and Luke chapter three. generation after generation after generation that lived and breathed and experienced all manner of chaos and difficulty and problems. And yet, within all of those generations, within all of that chaos, within all of the drama fulfilled in a little Judean town called Bethlehem was the birth of the Messiah at precisely the time that God said it would occur. It says in, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that Jesus came in the fullness of time, that is, just at the proper time, fulfilling many, many prophecies, but most specifically the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that the Messiah would come 483 years after the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given. That's a sovereign God who can control all of the dimension of humanity over that period of time. That is a sovereign God who controls the Roman Caesar in a respect that the Caesar gives a decree that there will be a census leading a young girl and her prospective husband to journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that the prophecy out of Micah chapter 5 could be fulfilled. That out of Bethlehem would come the ruler. So God is sovereign. And we see that in the incarnation. In his control over, his prediction of, his fulfillment of the appearance of His Son in the flesh. Now, the sovereignty of God is a wonderful theological concept, but it comes down to the rubber meeting the road for you and for me when we understand that God is sovereign, that He oversees our life in minute ways. He is interested in everything that you do. He is attentive to your life. That's why... We can say that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Now, sometimes in our lives, it does not appear as though what is happening to us is good. Imagine what is going through Joseph and Mary's minds as she begins to enter into labor, traveling down this arduous journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Much of it a very dangerous and difficult road. But she begins to go into labor. And as she enters into Bethlehem, Joseph is knocking at every door, but there is no room for them. Even at the public accommodations, there is no place for them to be. Where's God? What's what's going on here? Can you imagine what they're thinking? Lord, the angel appeared to me. He told me I would give birth to the Messiah. Is this really what you have intentioned for the Messiah? To not have a place to be born? But they found a, a place in a barn, didn't they? In a manger. He was laid. Perfectly fulfilling, at least I think through most of our views, what absolutely should have been, that the King of Kings, the Holy One, the mightiest of all, would enter into this world in the most humble of circumstances. God was in control of that. He intended it. And in your life, when it seems to be spiraling out of control, careening into the ditch. The fact is, you may be exactly where God intends you to be. For his sovereign purpose. You see, he, again, is sovereign over the perspective. He has the knowledge of what will be. And he knows what he is working out in our lives. So, the appearance of Christ fulfilling prophecy, managing genealogy, controlling out of control circumstances, to me, gives me great hope. Because every time I begin to complain, begin to question, begin to wonder, what is going on here, Lord? Why are you allowing this in my life? I hear these words, my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. But trust me, I got this. I love you. It's going to be all right. So we learn through the incarnation that our God is sovereign. That he is in control. We also learn that our God is seeking. That is to say, he is taking and placing all resources available in order for us to hear the message of salvation. When something is lost that you treasure, that you that you love. Jesus says, you'll leave everything else aside and begin to search for that object, right? Something that is very precious to you that is lost. Can you think about anything else but that one thing that is lost, that is misplaced? Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 15 about the woman who, who stops everything she's doing and begins to sweep her house lo- looking for that one coin that she lost. When my son was four, and my daughter at this time would have been about six, I was the manager over the child protection uh, division at the Department of Human Services in Mesa County. And I was in a meeting with a bunch of people And someone came rushing in and said, your son is lost. Now, that's a pretty sobering message to get. What had happened was Christy had called the child protection hotline over which I was the supervisor. The child protection supervisor's wife calls. My son is lost. Help. Can you get my husband? Now, this was before cell phones. Right? So she couldn't just call my cell phone. So, person Manning, the hotline, comes into the office where I'm at, interrupts the meeting, says, Your son is lost. Your wife can't find him. At that point, everything stopped for me. I left the office, rushed home. Christy and I began to search. We got neighbors involved in the search, looking everywhere we could to find my son. Eventually, we did find him. He was in the back bo- backyard behind a, a shrub. <laughs> and I have to tell you that when we found him, we were joyful. I wasn't angry. I wasn't upset. I was full of joy because I had found what I was looking for. There's more to that story that I will share momentarily. So Jesus, when he became flesh, that reveals to us that God is seeking us out. You see, the Bible says that none of us seek after God. None of us are looking for him. It's God who is seeking us out. And Jesus' appearance upon the earth into humanity reveals God's seeking nature, that he is seeking to find that which is lost. Now, that does not mean that God doesn't know where we are. He knows precisely where we are. But he is coming to seek us so that we may be found. Because here's the other part of the story with my son. My six-year-old daughter... And the wisdom of a six-year-old thought it would be fun to go and tell her mom that Zach was missing. And when she had hidden Zach in this place, and every time we got close to where Zach was, Chelsea moved him somewhere else. <laughs> and I also didn't tell you that this went on for over forty-five minutes. So she was she was creative. I have to give her credit for that. And that. But that's how we are, isn't it? God is seeking us out, but we don't want to be found. Jesus stands at the door, it says in Revelation 3, and knocks, asking for entrance into our lives. But we have to rise up and open the door. He is seeking us. He is calling out to us. And this time of year during Christmas, we remember the seeking action of a God who desired that we be found. Jesus, when he called down Zacchaeus from the tree, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and none of the people liked Zacchaeus. Because Zacchaeus would often rob the people of additional taxes. But J- Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I'm going to dine at your house today. So he went into Zacchaeus' house, and because of the presence and the power of Jesus Christ in his house, Zacchaeus converted and said, You know what, Lord, I am going to repay fourfold over anything that I have took from anyone or taken from anyone. And Jesus says, Behold, salvation today has come to this house because the Son of Man has come to seek that which was lost. So He's seeking us. His presence in humanity reveals that to us, that God did not just stay upon His heavenly throne, but that He came searching for us. He comes to our lives knocking at the door He is speaking to you and to me and to every person upon this planet in some fashion every day through creation, through His Spirit, through His Word. He is speaking to us. He is trying to get our attention. Just as I was delighted when I found my Son, so too heaven rejoices whenever one sinner repents and turns to God. So God is seeking us. He's searching after us. And finally, the incarnation reveals that God is a saving God. He is a saving God. Do you remember 1987? There was a little toddler named Jessica McClure, down in Midland, Texas. How many of you remember the drama? Jessica was a little toddler, and in her backyard, there was a little well, only eight inches in diameter. And somehow, she had gotten into that and fallen down into the well. And she couldn't extricate herself, and there was no way to get down into that well and to pull her back up because she had become entrenched because of the small nature of the well. And when this became known, all of the services there in Midland, Texas, were called upon. And everything stopped in that town in order to save that little girl. And it became a national and really even an international drama because for some 58 hours they were drilling a well next to the well that Jessica had fallen into down through very difficult soil. Then they had to drill over. And then they had to get a fireman to go down in the well and crawl over to get her. But all resources we focused upon that one little girl in order to save her. The attention of the nation and indeed the world was focused on would she be saved. That's how it is for us, for mankind. God pulled out all the stops in order to save us. He did everything in order to save us. You see, there was only one way that we could be saved from our sin. And that was through the shedding of blood. The Old Testament says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So there's only one way for sin to be forgiven, and that's through the shedding of blood. But in the book of Hebrews, we read that The blood of bulls and of goats shed year after year after year could not remove sin. There was no way. It was not pure enough to remove the sin of humanity. So God, the Bible says, so loved us that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, sent him into the world in order to become a sacrifice for us. Listen to what it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here am I. It is written about me in the scroll of the book. I have come to do your will, speaking of the Messiah who would come, Jesus Christ. First, when he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, you were not pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here am I, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of, of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. When Jesus shed his blood, and that blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat before the throne of God, God accepted that sacrifice. So sin can be forgiven. Blood has been shed sufficient to pay the price for you and for me and for every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. A body you have prepared for me. God had to become flesh in order to shed holy blood that we might be forgiven. So the incarnation reveals a God who is a saving God because he is a loving God. He loves us. Greater love has no man than this, that he saved, or excuse me, he sacrificed himself for his friends. God loves us. And the incarnation reveals that. Because he did not have to become a man. He did not have to shed his blood. God did not need to do that. But because of his great love for us, he did. And so when I look at the babe in the manger, I remember that Christ came to the cradle in order to go to the cross. That's really what Christmas is all about. It's not just about the babe in the manger, but it's about the sacrificial death he suffered on our behalf. The resurrection from the dead that demonstrated his power over the grave. That all began with the birth of a little boy in a manger in Bethlehem. A sovereign God who is seeking the lost and will go to all extremes in order to save those who have been separated from him. That's the miracle. Of Christmas. That's the wonder of God becoming flesh. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And as we leave this place today, I want you to remember those things about the God who became flesh that he is sovereign over our lives, that he is seeking you, even those of you who walk with him. He is seeking more of your life he is seeking you to become like Christ and for those of you who have yet to humble yourself and accept and receive the gift of salvation that Christmas speaks of that the cross portrays for us that the resurrection secured this Christmas receive the greatest gift that you possibly could receive that of salvation from a God who loves you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation, the joy that fills our hearts because you love us, you seek us, you are sovereign over us. It does not yet appear what we shall be, But we know this, that when you appear, we will be like you because we will see you as you are. And so, Lord, this Christmas season, fill us with the wonder of who you are, the miracle of Christmas. May it be something, Lord, that transcends anything that we have ever experienced before. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise.